0: Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals. Hello and welcome to the Safer Chemicals Podcast. Our guest today is Martin, do I say it Hojcik? Hojcik, yeah. Hoysik. all right. A Slovak activist, environmental expert and a politician elected as a member of the European Parliament in 2019. He is the European Chemicals Agency's so-called liaison MEP, so the one following our work most closely in the Environment Committee and overall in the European Parliament. Um, In the European Parliament, your work focuses on chemical policies, including pesticides, pollinator protection, climate and biodiversity financing. Um, You have a lot of experience in environmental protection and climate change. Uh, Over the past 25 years, you've worked in several international organizations. Uh, You also led national and international campaigns against toxic substances and waste uh, in Greenpeace. Um, You were also a member of the board of Four Paws International, where you led their program on animal protection. Uh, You are also vice chairman of the non-parliamentary political movement, Progressive Slovakia, and their expert on environmental issues and sustainability. Did I get that more or less right? Okay, good. Uh, then welcome to the Safer Chemicals podcast, Martin. Um, now, it's no surprise that today we'll be focusing mainly on EU chemicals policy and your work in that area. So let's get started. Um, could you tell our listeners why you decided to go into politics and eventually run for the European Parliament?
1: Well, uh, I was active in the environmental, and not just environmental, I was three years in the development uh, movement as well. And for me, it's kind of been always... The actual incredible privilege I had that I could work in the fields where I was trying to make, we could call the world a better place. And uh, over the years, I've been involved in a number of uh, interesting and I believe, successful campaigns. But in Slovakia, uh, with a group of friends, we always felt that there is no one who is representing the views that we have. Views that we should be a modern European country, as simple as that. And modern includes for me sustainable, not just green, but truly sustainable in all three pillars. So we founded our own party. And uh, back in 2018, when we had the first party congress, and uh, in the process, I somehow realized that, well, I've been working on a European policy since. Actually, before Slovakia joined the European Union. Interestingly enough, I've been lobbying in the European Parliament as a Greenpeace campaigner before we joined the EU and and afterwards for a while. And uh, in this respect, I thought, okay, this is an interesting area for me to go to. And uh, I decided to run for European Parliament. And uh, it was the first ever public office that I was running for and got elected. So that's how I ended up
0: there. Uh, now, you mentioned running several successful campaigns. Could you just mention an example, uh, particularly for chemicals? For chemicals, the
1: thing that I'm most proud of was uh, back in end of 2000s, uh, beginning of 2010, I, uh, I basically led the uh, global detox campaign of Greenpeace International, where I worked with the uh, textile industry. Mm-hmm to try to get them to get rid of toxic chemicals, not only from their products, but throughout the entire supply chain. So making sure that they get their suppliers to phase out the toxic chemicals from production. The reason behind it was really massive water pollution in Asia. And the best thing and the best approach to do that was really to substitute the hazardous chemicals by safer ones something that actually originally came from, from a region which I was working as a campaigner uh, before. In uh, the Greener electronics campaign, where we tackled in a similar way the electronics industry, there we were doing a ranking, kind of assessing... The public, and that's very important, public statements of the multinationals vis-a-vis how they want to deal with uh, the end-of-life products, but also how they want to deal with the toxic uh, substances uh, in their products. Uh, We didn't go for any certificates, but we essentially asked the companies to publicly commit, and that's very important, not to us, but to their customers, to their shareholders, that they are going to eliminate hazardous chemicals throughout the entire supply chain. And it's not so important that some NGO is giving stamps uh, or seals of approval or whatever. What is for me important is that, especially for the publicly listed companies where such a statement have a relevance for the stock market, they publicly say what their policy is. Mm. And that makes them also, so to say, responsible in the eyes of their shareholders and customers to
0: uphold and do their utmost to deliver. So it commits them to the cause. Exactly. Um, okay, then let's move from that to your time as an MEP. So where would you say you've made the biggest difference as an MEP uh, when it comes to chemicals policy in the EU? That's not an easy one, I
1: have to say. Uh,
0: where I, mm, I don't
1: dare to judge uh, myself where I, where I made the biggest difference. I think what's been really important was for me to see how we can not just in terms of what say the classical chemicals but also in in pesticides really start pushing and I think the chemical strategy for sustainability but also what's following up are important in making sure that we have a system of material flows Because if we want a circular economy, we have to have toxic-free material flows. Mm -hmm. That's where one of the things I found important was for example, our objection on the uh, lead levels in the recycled PVC. Mm -hmm. Because really, if we want to have the public trust, if we want to have the security that uh, the materials that are being recycled are toxic-free, then we really need to make sure that the toxic chemicals are are out there, that we don't perpetuate this toxic cycle and uh, that we flush out, so to say, these chemicals out of the system and start properly working on, on closing the material loop, closing uh, the flows, because it's an immense task. Oh. We have to replace fossil feedstock ultimately, but we're not going to have sufficient amount of uh, bio-based feedstock, uh, not to mention really closing the loop, even what we have now, it's reducing the amount of fossil carbon that we take in. But because there are lots of these uh, substances, lots of these materials around us, we need to really make sure that the hazardous chemicals are not in them.
0: Can you talk a little bit more in practice? How does that work? Because as you said, it's a massive undertaking. Uh, requires the work of you know not just the the MEPs and not just the legislators, but also the commitment from companies, the recyclers, the waste processors to be on board with this. Do you do that through legislation? Do you do that through the different stakeholders that you work with? How does it how does it work? Now, for me,
1: the the work as a member of European Parliament is not so to say, only to, to sit down on the laws or, or report. Uh, but I find it really important to discuss things with all different stakeholders. And I'm very important for me is the discussion element. Uh, you, what you see around is, of course, all sides doing very intense lobbying to try to influence legislation one way or the other. Uh, for me, the discussion is about trying to listen to each other, but also trying to understand and learn from each other and hearing not only kind of what one or the other side wants, but what is behind it and how we can get to, in the best way, how we can get to what we ultimately set ourselves to achieve and to, that's it. That's uh, making sure that we fit into the planet limits. It's a big, big task, but important for our survival. So, indeed, talking with chemical industry, talking with scientists, talking with NGOs, talking with consumer organizations, uh, talking with ECHA, And I'm honored to be the liaison because I had the opportunity to have more in-depth insight into how ECA works, but also to have discussions about what are the challenges, what works, but also what doesn't work. And I think this is important. If we don't learn from where are the problems, then how are we going to fix them?
0: Um, Let's move on then uh, to a moment that inspired you during your career. And it's a two-faceted question. So first we look at the positive, something that inspired you, and then maybe a moment where things didn't go as well or as planned.
1: Uh, What inspired me, one of the chemical, to stay within the chemical, are lots of interesting things, um, was... How broad support the protection of pollinators has in the european Parliament, but in some ways it's you know very obvious because because it's a good symbol uh, pollinators and and especially bees are something that people can visualize as opposed to some you know hazardous molecules but uh this shown that yeah when we managed to to get a very strong kind of position uh of the parliament and and it was more than six hundred m e p supported. Uh, I outstand st- on, on on the bees here. Uh, it gave me quite a bit of, so to say, support. Kind of really, this is something what the legislator wants. On the other hand, what I was a bit upset about was uh, that uh, we, there was an objection that we did on uh, on one of the chromium authorizations, where for there was of course big pushback from the industry. My problem with it was that it was also allowing lots of the uses of this hazardous form of chromium to continue despite the fact that there were available alternatives. And one of the things that for me was important in the REACH from the very start and when looking back 20 20 years ago, it's crazy, yeah. Uh, When the REACH was, uh, so to say, being born, the substitution principle, replacing hazardous chemicals with safer alternatives and helping to drive innovation with it, giving opportunity and essentially motivation to, to scientists, to inventors, to the industry to come up with safer chemicals because they could see that there is a market at the end of the day replacing something hazardous. That's something what I believe we need to, we need to make stronger. But I think that's where we really have to look at the uh, uh, the REACH on where there is time for restriction and when there is time for kind of the authorization procedure and, and uh, really go uh, the, the, the classical Article 6 way. Um, okay, then let's talk more
0: specifically 56. about... The...
1: I now realize that I don't really remember the Articles of <laughs> REACH anymore. When we had the... When we had the, uh, the REACH was uh, still in the Parliament... We're joking that we have acute articulosis. We actually were talking in acronyms and articles, Might be 56. But I have to correct myself.
0: Okay, I can relate to that. We have we love our acronyms here, and yeah. the, we, people quote the reach legislation like they knew it better than a, you know a storybook from their childhood. It's it's uh, uh, it's a it's VB's, ingrained. VB's, VB's, oh, DDCs, oh, oh, Don't yes, get me started. Oh, yes. We could do the whole interview with nothing but abbreviations. I'm sure. Um, we try next time, <laughs> next time. challenge accepted. Let's do it. Um, but okay, if we move then more specifically to the EU. Green Deal, um, the the chemical strategy for sustainability also. Um, Why would you say that we need them Um, and what is the main concern to be tackled by them on an EU level, particularly to ensure chemical safety?
1: Well, uh, the science for me on this is clear and and recently there's been scientists warning that we are crossing, so to say, into danger zone on chemical pollution. And it's, it's sad to see that just like with the climate change, uh, just like with loss of biodiversity, we tend to ignore the science almost until the very last moment. And my hope with the uh, CSS is that we will not only learn from science and start dealing with the problem that we have, but that we see this uh, and use it as an opportunity. I, I'm a great believer in in trying and the ability of humankind to improve things if if we want to, mm. to be able to kind of stand in against the worst adversaries and kind of say fight back. And you know, yes, that's a hint on Ukraine now. But uh, I have uh, lots of friends there, so for me, it's it's tough now. But uh, it's the amazing courage there. But also, with you know, bridge to the CSS. The problems with the chemicals, how we deal with materials seems to be huge and sometimes even you know almost impossible to solve. But I believe that when we set up the system right, when we reward, uh, and not meaning by subsidies, but when we really give the proper space in the market to those which come up with safe chemicals, bring in the externalities into the system, have the regulatory framework done in a way that it actually makes sure that the chemicals that are hazardous are continuously pushed out of the market and we bring in the intrinsically, and this is important, intrinsically safe alternatives, not something that "Ah, a bit of this, you know, cancer-causing chemical is okay. When we have chemicals that don't cause cancer, that will allow us to actually progress towards the circular economy. Not only to protect the health and environment, this is very important, but also really to be able to close the material loop and ultimately fit within the planetary limits, which we are living on a planetary debt that if it would be a company or a state running such a deficit, it would be bankrupt within a year. And we we'll pretend nothing is happening, we we'll pretend everything is okay, but it's not. And that's where I think the chemical strategy for sustainability is one of the crucial crucial pillars of the Green Deal to help us to actually get
0: to the future. What would you say, um, in, in practical terms, is needed to achieve something so ambitious? In a, in a climate, an environment where, um, you know, there is skepticism towards science uh, on a large scale in many areas, how do you combat that and, and kind of putting the facts against hearsay and, and, and kind of maybe misguided even public perception in some cases where the science is not being trusted? How do you bring something ambitious like that? to the forefront. I
1: think the uh, issue of toxic pollution in terms of the public perception has one advantage over the climate. Climate has been having a tough time to get across in public understanding because it's a very complex systemic issue. And even then at at the end of it, it's just kind of, and it's not the proper way to say it, but the weather changes a bit. yeah. It's way bigger and more complex than that, but it's harder for people to internalize it. Okay. Now, with the hazardous chemicals, uh, it's more personal. So for me, the the what I've seen over the years is that people take it a bit more seriously, and that's where my hope lies that uh, this is an issue where, where the public is... Uh, Despite sometimes, uh, anti-scientific sentiments, I think the public is, uh, much more visibly behind it. Mm. And, uh, how to bring it about? I think besides kind of the public pressure engagement, what I'm really hoping, and that's what I'm, I'm repeating in my discussions with chemicals in this, with chemical industry in Europe is that this is about their own survival but in a different way than, you know, it was in the past. I still remember the days when there was this letter from uh, uh, the prime ministers of Germany, France, and the uh, UK saying that to the to the commission saying, if reach will pass, the in- you destroy the chemical industry of Europe. All will be lost. And that was 20 years ago. And I don't think the chemical industry is dead good for us, I'm happy actually, I don't wanna see the chemical industry dead, but I think that they really have to see that the move to to sustainable, to green chemistry is uh, important for their own survival. This is where overall, over the world, the, the shift is happening, and the European chemical industry historically haven't been the strongest one in the world, needs to lead the way. We see how we are now catching up in terms of the electric cars. And I would not want to see that with the chemical industry. I want the European chemical industry to be at the forefront of innovation, to be those which kind of bring the solutions for the whole world. And yes, uh, give, make profit and, and give jobs to people in, in the meantime. And that's where uh, I'm really, really hoping that uh, the industry will be on board in the change and will realize that it's not about trying to manage risk but get rid of the hazards.
0: Let's move on to the priorities of the European Parliament in the work that's still ahead to implement implement all this work. Um, what are they? What are the main priorities? What's still to be done? And maybe to add to that, what's kind of different from let's say the start of REACH where you know, there was this ambitious chemicals legislation that was going to change the world and make it safer and improve chemical safety. What is the, what is the next step that's being taken with this work now? What, what does it add essentially to what REACH was all about? well technically we are waiting for
1: the commission to come up with the proposals uh on implementing the css and this is something where as as a body that we cannot come up with our own legislation uh i think we quite clearly signal to the commission what we want and what we expect uh so now it's time for the commission to start delivering and we have high expectations both on the on the clp Uh, on the Ridge Review, there's different pieces of legislation in the pipeline that concern hazardous chemicals, down to food contact materials. So, there is a lot of work to do. It's interconnected. It's hard for me to pick up what is is the most important piece. But uh, we have to make sure as a parliament that, on one hand, the different pieces fit together, that we don't have uh policies that are not compatible uh but on the other on the other hand as well that uh, we really maintain the ambition that is needed that we don't and start to look for excuses while we need to damp things down and given the the current geopolitical situation i think really uh it's, for me, it's even more important to be able as a Europe to, to foster this kind of strategic autonomy. And that requires that indeed we'll be able to close the material loops, that we'll know what to do with the end-of-life plastics and actually turn it into new products 100%. And again, to do that, we need to have the safe chemicals. So we have uh, a toxic-free material. So we have to start working from really the design level. So massive task ahead, but uh, fascinating. And I think something which uh, is um, for me also a big motivation because we can fix lots of things in the coming years or start fixing. And I think that's very important.
0: Would you say then that we are collectively in the EU on the right track to address all these challenges?
1: I hope so. it's far, far from far from done deal. I think the the overall intentions are good. I think we are on good track in terms of what we set out to do with the Green Deal, and that's been really bold move. We just should not stop. We just should not waver. We have to we have to keep on keep on going. And I think
0: this is this is gonna be the crucial to deliver. Um, what about the role of, of an EU agency like ECHA specifically in this? How do you see our role in the long term on um, this work? Well, besides the fact that, you know, ECA has a vital role
1: and what we need to look at is several aspects. One thing is we have a number of scientific agencies which are very closely linked in the field. And I think we have to find a way to interlink them better we have to find a way how to make sure that the data and information, the collaboration flows better. And uh, also find a way how to simplify the interaction uh, between the businesses and the agencies, not by you know downgrading the requirements, but by looking at synergies and how to make sure that you know you don't have multiple assessments that maybe don't even fit in properly because you look from different perspectives, but then, you know, it's extra bureaucracy for the business, but then also from the point of public health and environment, uh, because you do it in a fragmented way, you might be losing some of the very important elements of it. So, yes, the whole concept of one substance, one assessment is something which I think we need to really look closer to and develop. Uh, on the overall perspective, what I would like to see ECA, but also other agencies to be encouraged to do is be able to have more initiative. You know, when the when the commission is asking the agency a question about something, an opinion, it defines by defining the question, it in a way defines the answer. And what we need is kind of if not the commission giving a more broader question or question that would be open to wider array of perspectives in terms of an answer then at least the uh, mandate for the agencies to answer from different perspectives. To answer in a way that might be going beyond the narrow thing on the question, but gives us rigorous and overall scientific look at the Uh, the issue at hand. And that's something which I believe will then enable us to do better decision-making.
0: Now, you covered this pretty much completely probably already, but let's still try and see if I can squeeze a little bit more out of you on this. But uh, this idea of green transition of the chemicals industry. Um, now, as I said, you talked about it, but what what exactly does it mean in practice? Let's say you take one company, for example, how would they transition, make that transition to being green? Um, you know, I, Obviously not overnight, but what are the steps there? And and maybe also if ECA has a role in helping that in some way, what would that be?
1: Well, yeah. Um to give you an example of, uh, of a plastics producer. Yeah? Uh, usually, of nowadays, you have a refinery uh, that's uh, using oil to make polypropylene and polyethylene. Uh, and this been the classic mainstay of the business, when I take the plastics part, uh, throwing in some additives or creating additives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that they should start looking at, okay, How can we not just build, so to say, a product line where we take old plastic and turn it into recycled plastic, so kind of replacing part of the feedstock, but starting to look at the overall chemistry of the product and tinkering with the design, with the objective of, okay, we have to design it in a way so when it comes back to us, it's not a problem to deal with and turn it back into the original product. And I think these are things that they need to start looking at uh, now. So when they are building this shift, uh, they don't only look at how to kind of utilize recycled material or kind of post-consumer material, but uh, how they start changing chemistry at at the design stage. So the whole process is much easier. Now, the role of ECA here is to make sure that uh, it's done properly on one hand, that uh, what they are coming with is properly independently assessed and, and seen as, as safe. But I think also to help to uh, facilitate a bit of an exchange within the industry in kind of this pre-competitive stage, uh, for example, to help them to avoid animal testing. Uh, I would love to live in a world where we don't have to have animal testing. Sadly, we still need some. But let's look together for uh, ways that we can get the information we need uh, without having animal testing and, and looking at really at the at the early design stages. But again, that's, that's a process that we need to start. Mm-hmm. It's not we can do it from one day to another, but if we don't start now, it's definitely going to take longer.
0: Mm. All right. Well, you, you mentioned this, so I feel comfortable in bringing ah, it up also. I so, it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you, you mentioned animal testing, and obviously um, it's not just an EU project. It's a global project. It it involves, you know, cooperation. We work a lot with the OECD, for example, and other international fora to come up with alternative methods, QSAR toolbox, and, and there's all kinds of projects ongoing on that. Um, I mean, it's a hot topic. It has been a hot topic for, for, for decades already. And now it's just building up, building up, because there seems to be much more awareness that something needs to change there um, and, and that there is technology now available that will help to do that transition maybe a bit more easier than, say, 10 years ago. Um, where do you see kind of the, the role of animal testing in regulatory science? There's been this um, statement that, you know, we will never be completely animal testing free, for example. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I believe that, you know... We
1: we can be, uh, and we will be if we want to. Uh, I heard the statements that, you know, uh, we will not do this or that, and it's happening. If you look at how the society has changed, the opportunities are there. But uh, what I'm concerned about is... and, and that we don't downgrade the protection of health and environment because of this. And, uh, you know, this is something, which is, it's a tight line because on one hand, you know, uh, I remember in 90s, me and my friends were kind of part of a campaign and we managed to stop animal testing at schools and uh, high schools in Slovakia. And it was kind of, that was a clear example of complete useless thing, you know, vivisection section on high schools, didn't bring any added value. It used to happen in Slovakia in the 90s. But at the same time, if we are not able yet to replace some tests, then ultimately it's also for the sake of not just human, but animal health, you know. I remember we were looking in the Reach campaign at the fact that because you have brominated flame retardants in the carpet, it was actually the pets who were suffering even more than the humans because they are closer, they are more in contact with the dust and everything. So the levels of the pollution there were higher. So ultimately making sure that we use safer chemicals and sadly it still includes uh, suffering and sacrifice of a number of animals, protects not just human, but other animals as well. Protects lots of the wildlife uh and i think this is this is something which is important to remember but it doesn't mean that we can look away when you know tech tests are being animal tests are being repeated has been already done Informa- mandatory information sharing and in this is something which is really really important because for me the compassion is something that that's really human and and we should we should stick to that so we need to do outmost, uh, but uh, we should not compromise on, on the health and environment. So that's kind of should be the two uh, driving forces. I study genetics and I'm fascinated by the complexity of life. It's incredibly complex. But that's where maybe in replacing animal testing, we should try to look not at, so to say, one to one, one method one animal is replaced by other non-animal methods. Oh. But how can we what are the combination of different tests uh, that would arrive us at the same results?
0: Right. I think what what you say about um more work needing to be done while not sacrificing obviously the protection of human health and the environment is very important. Sorry to interrupt you. Health and it's not just that's for me kind of the, the forgotten
1: thing is animal health. It's it's equally animal health. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's
0: basically yeah,
1: we see impacts on hazardous chemicals also
0: on animals, not just humans. Mm. You know, you mentioned that the repeating of the same tests that have been done already over and over again should be avoided when the data is already there. Um, so this kind of data sharing aspect and also making use of the data that we've pulled in from industry so far, what, what are your views on that, this kind of international data sharing and its importance in ensuring uh, on a global scale that uh, less of the testing is done than what is actually really needed?
1: I, you would expect it's a common sense. It's, it's the same as, you know, when I was... Trying to discuss with that's an interesting thing I sometimes doing for testing of how to explain things. People used to believe twenty years ago that you know, yes, the law looks like when you have a hazardous chemical that causes cancer and there's a safer alternative. Of course, the law you know is banning the hazardous chemical, but it wasn't the way. Now here, if you would ask the people on the street, they would tell you, well, of course, it's it's happening, no, and it's not. It's it's it's. Definitely something where more can be done. I can, so to say, well understand. I I see some of the concerns that the industry has about you know intellectual property rights and so on. But at the same time, this is something where a I believe we should be able to come up with a with a better sharing models. And I hope that the industry has a certain level of compassion as well. And that's where. Uh, I think we need to have much stronger mandatory provisions of sharing of uh, an actual public availability of uh, animal testing data. Because you might have not just kind of situations where you are applying for a permit for a certain chemical, but already on the the kind of uh, primary research phase, things might be happening. And having a better exchange really, I believe, can help.
0: All right, Martin. Um, that's the the battery of questions that I had prepared for you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, all the best of luck with uh, with everything that you still, the, all the work that is still to be done, uh, not just on chemical safety, but also otherwise in as your role in the in the European Parliament. And hopefully, I will have you back someday in Helsinki on the hot seat.
1: Was a, was a pleasure to be here. Uh, and uh, yeah, good luck to to Eka. Uh, lots of exciting work ahead, and I'm going to be thrilled to to follow it.
0: Safer Chemicals Podcast. Sound science on harmful chemicals.